Last episode, we finally embarked on the restoration and acquisition of the last four theaters. The State, the Palace, the Hannah, and the Allen. The large state was the next theater to undergo renovation, and thanks to the work of volunteers and the stars performing at Playhouse Square, it reopened June 9, 1984. Following that was the palace, which despite some fundraising snags, got the money necessary to reopen due to a 1985 study of economic impact, which highlighted Playhouse Square's positive economic effect on the area. The Hannah was first planned to be a cabaret space in a new effort led by the returned Ray Shepardson. However, its opening got overshadowed by an incredible season by Cleveland's baseball team and had some financial struggles, so it soon closed once again. However, due to this closure, Playhouse Square was finally able to get control of the theater. Finally, the Allen Theater was at risk for demolition due to the raising of the parking lot behind it. However, once again, passionate theater lovers and preservationists were able to secure its safety as the Allen was finally renovated with the intention of housing touring Broadway shows. Now, with all five theaters under their ownership, Playhouse Square is ready to take Cleveland by storm. This is The Miracle on Euclid Avenue. It's the year 2000, a new century, and Playoff Square was doing better than ever. All five theaters were under the same ownership, and marquees were lit. The theater district was full of people seeing shows, grabbing food, and staying at the hotels. It finally seemed as if things were turning a new corner. And, I mean, the numbers don't lie. A 2004 study by Cleveland State University found that Playoff Square as a whole had an economic impact of $43 million. Now, to those who may not be familiar with economic report jargon, namely myself, economic impact, as defined by the University of Alabama at Birmingham, examines the direct, indirect, and induced impact generating the economy as a result of the organization. Therefore, Playoff Square was generating $43 million to the Cleveland economy, which was roughly equal to the cost it took to renovate these theaters. Despite all the doubts that may have been held during the renovation that the theaters were essentially a money pit and that the city lacked a necessity for the five theaters, here was concrete proof that Playa Square's plans were a worthwhile venture. The district would only grow as the years went on. In 2005, a National Register landmark building at 1375 Euclid Avenue was donated to Playa Square. Prior to this, in its 93 years of operation, the building had been a warehouse, the TV station WJW Studios, and a part of the Cleveland Public Library. This new era would see Playo Square collaborating with now IdeaStream Public Media to renovate and transform the space into offices, television and radio studios, and a hub for technology and creativity. The incorporation of IdeaStream into the district is significant in many ways. Not only is it a huge achievement to house the local PBS and NPR stations, but more importantly, this was a collaboration. Something you'll notice, or at least something I noticed as I dive into the history as a whole, is that once Playo Square could stand up on its own two feet, there was a commitment to helping Cleveland performance groups and other organizations in order to spread the wealth around. Groups like Cleveland Ballet, Tri-C Jazz Fest, and Cleveland State University have been homes within the district. Since being acquired by Playoff Square in 1999, the Hannah had seen some success, chiefly in being the home for the very successful, long-running, and partly improvised comedy, Tina and Tony's Wedding, which opened in September of 2000. However, Playoff Square began developing plans for the Hannah. Big plans. A hydraulic system, a mechanical fly system, a new thrust stage, 
all with the price tag of $19.3 million. Now, not all $19.3 million would be for the renovation. Only $14.7 million would be used for that. Now, if you're keeping score, that then leaves $4.6 million. Now, this wasn't money without a purpose, nor for some sort of illegal, under-the-table money smuggling ring. Most of the money would be used as an endowment for the new tenants. Or, I guess the more accurate term would be the new old tenants. Let me see. Oh, yeah. The first resident company, Great Lakes uh, Shakespeare Festival, spends 26 years presenting on that stage. By that stage, she means the Ohio. And in 2008, they moved to uh, the restored and reimagined Hannah the Theater. Theater. Yeah. However, financing the move from the Ohio to the Hannah would take some effort. By January of 2008, construction had begun and 75% of the funds needed had already been raised through pledges. But there was still $600,000 to go. So in order to cross the finish line, they got a little help from a certain Oscar winner. Goes to Tom Hanks and Forrest Gump. A fun little Colonel Cleveland theater history? Tom Hanks' first acting job out of college in 1977 was with Great Lakes and he spent three seasons with them. In October of 2009, Tom Hanks would return once again to the Hannah stage, this time under a special one-man show, Tom Hanks at the Hannah. The show was a massive success, helping raise a good chunk of the 600000 that was needed in order to get a $1 million match from the Kresge Foundation. Tom Hanks continued to support these efforts. A day after his Hannah appearance, Hanks was a guest on The Late Show with David Letterman, where he gave a shout-out to the theater and the city. But even with Tom Hanks in their corner, the 600000 needed was still not there. And as December rolled around, you could imagine nerves setting in. The Kresge Foundation would only provide the $1 million match if the money was raised by December 31st. And as 2009 was winding down to its final days, there was still at least $100,000 to go. But Tom Hanks still had one card left to play. On December 24th, Great Lakes' producing artistic director Charles Fee received an email from Hanks. Tom and his wife Rita Wilson gave a donation that would give Great Lakes and Playhouse Square the boost needed to push them to the finish line and receive the additional $1 million from the Kresge Foundation. A Christmas Eve miracle, you could call it. With that, the Hannah completed its campaign and welcomed the new year with a big sigh of relief. Now, a note on timeline. While Tom Hanks was fundraising and, you know, cementing his status as one of the nicest people in Hollywood, the Hannah was actually open. It opened back in September 20, 2008, with construction loans being taken out in order to begin the work without having to have all the money raised from the get-go. The new renovations and reconfigurations were received very well. The work done by the architectural firm Westlake Reed Leskowski was applauded for marrying a beautiful restoration of the historic space with modern systems and technology, which brought it into the 21st century. Another cool facet of the space? The seating and view, something Trevor Offutt is very familiar with, both as a performer and as an audience member. And I have loved performing in the Hannah. It's one of my favorite places. I am, there's some performers who like to be far away. And if you like to be further away, like the palace or the state is better for that. I like intimate, I like to be able to see everybody. And the Hannah, there is no bad seat in the Hannah. In fact, the architects had it so that no seat would be more than 62 feet from the stage 
which to put in perspective, Sir Lawrence Olivier once said that it was impossible to receive an adequate performance from more than 65 feet away. So by the Hannah's metrics, Olivier would be quite happy with this theater. Trevor often agrees. The last production they did of uh, Les Mis, they're going to do another one very soon, but the last one that was there, I said, I will never see Les Mis again because I was right next to Jean Valjean. I wanted, I was... I was with him, right? It was so powerful. A nice little note before we move on. Peter Van Dyke, the man who worked on the restorations for the Ohio Palace and State and developed the 1973 master plan, which envisioned a future with the theaters being used to create an entire arts district rather than just a stretch of parking lots, was a former partner of Westlake Reed Leskowski, the firm behind the Hannes configuration. In fact, during the time of the renovation, Van Dyke still worked for them. Van Dyke would also be the architect behind Ursuline College, University School's Upper School, and Blossom Music Center. Van Dyke died in 2019, but his designs and spirits still live on. Now, while Great Lakes was thriving in its new home, some other resident companies were facing some trouble. Cleveland historian John Vacha gives us some details. When the opera company and the ballet company folded, they had to readapt. The ballet company in question was the Cleveland Ballet, which in 2000 ceased all operations in Cleveland and moved fully to San Jose, California, which had been their partial home since 1985. Now you might be wondering how this is possible since there is still a Cleveland Ballet, one which does perform in Playhouse Square currently and is not in San Jose. Well, in 2014, a new incarnation of the company was founded and in 2017 became a Playhouse Square resident company. As for the opera company, the Cleveland Opera had gone defunct by 2010 due to mismanagement, some financial decisions, and the general director leaving. Now, this is once again another case of a different company coming about that used the same name as the one that folded. So the Cleveland Opera you see performing today is not the one that folded. Now, this then left the state without its two resident companies, so something needed to be put on that stage. And turns out there was an interested party. The Broadway shows we have um, anywhere between seven and nine in a season. And those are shows that are established that travel around the country and they're called the broadway series it's because these are the shows that you would see on broadway at any given time that's penny zalatel playhouse square's director of production and a former director of production at cleveland playhouse we do a three-week run with these shows and um and so our large subscriber base that is where financially playhouse square makes its money are these broadway shows it's almost impossible to say how big of a deal the Broadway series is to Playhouse Square. They began as one-week runs in the 80s and 90s before building up to two and now three-week stints, with many, if not all, of the shows selling out in the process. And now these shows wanted to be brought into the state, which was great, since it solved the problem of what would be put on the state stage. But if you remember from our previous episode, the Allen had been saved primarily because it would be a house for these new Broadway shows. But since they were moving out, the Allen now found itself in the same boat the state had just been in, a theater without a company. Playo Square was determined to not let the Allen fall to the wayside, though. And by April 2009, a solution was found. Or, to be more accurate, 
solutions were found. They also made the deal to bring the Cleveland Playhouse downtown. That's John Vacha again. And they saved the Allen by downsizing it for the Playhouse, and then they built those two new theaters in between. Launched as a collaboration between Playoff Square, the Cleveland Playhouse, and Cleveland State University, the $32 million project would turn one 2,500-seat theater into three theaters with a combined capacity of roughly 978 seats across the Allen, the Helen, and the Outcult. By 2012, the three theaters were open and being used by Cleveland Playhouse, Cleveland State University, and Case Western Reserve's University's MFA program. The inclusion of these new companies and theaters actually ended up being a good idea for Playhouse Square, as it gave them the opportunity to create. Cleveland Playhouse is a regional company. It's an equity company that produces um, all of their own work. So Cleveland Playhouse being a producing company meant that Penny, in her position as director of production of Cleveland Playhouse, got to oversee everything from initial design meetings all the way up until performances. So essentially, every time a show is put on in Cleveland Playhouse or other original companies, they're creating everything from the ground up. It's sort of reminiscent of the earlier productions in Playoff Square, like Jock Brell, Alice, and the decline and fall of the entire world as seen through the eyes of Cole Porter. Now, Playoff Square is what's known as a presenting company, meaning that they deal with things in their show-ready incarnation. There is no need for design meetings as these works go straight to stage. Now with Cleveland Playhouse in the building, Playhouse Square could have the best of both worlds by producing and presenting. However, that's not to say that bringing in Cleveland Playhouse didn't have its own consequences. The Cleveland Playhouse's original building, a historic complex built in 1926, had served the company until their decision to move in 2009. The building was then sold to the Cleveland Clinic around that time where it was used for storage, training, logistics, and administration until it wasn't. In May of 2022, the clinic made their plans public to eventually demolish the structure. They had no more use for it. Repairs would be costly, and the space would be better served as a staging area for a new neurology institute as well as for parking. In a case of history repeating itself, many were upset by the news of the destruction of the theater and took action. A change.org petition boasts 4,929 signatures, as the supporters shared fond memories and calls for the historic place to be preserved. However, unlike their similar-minded comrades from decades ago, the people of Cleveland lost this fight. And on January 17th, 2023, the structure was raised. When learning about the fate of the original building, I got a sick feeling in my stomach. I know that Cleveland Playhouse made a good decision in moving to Playhouse Square, given how the 2008 recession made making repairs to the original CPH building even harder than before. But part of me always wonders, if Cleveland Playhouse had never left, would the building still be standing today? This all leads into a bigger question then. While Playhouse Square has done some wonderful things for Cleveland, has it also had some adverse effects? As cities across the country become more gentrified as residents are being pushed out of their neighborhoods, Cleveland isn't much different. When looking at Playhouse Square's practice of buying up buildings in the area to then renovate for restaurants, stores, offices, among other things, it's hard to not acknowledge the effects of this. Because the fact of the matter is, in the district, luxury apartments and hotels are the things invested in rather than affordable housing. Rent is some of the highest in the city and buildings continue to be bought up. 
So seeing playoff square be a bystander of, if not a part of gentrification, is not so hard to believe. Now listen, these theaters have done amazing things for the city, don't get me wrong. I believe that we're lucky to have them. All I just hope to do is to provide a complete history of these theaters, which means including everything, the good and the bad. If we don't do that, then we're never going to tell the full story. Before I continue on, this next section contains some content that may be upsetting for some listeners as it discusses suicide. If this is the case for you, you can skip about two minutes forward. Thanks. On Sunday, April 13th, 2014, Ray Shepardson made a video. The video was him walking around his house in an almost day-in-the-life type format. The video was never finished. On Monday, April 14th, 2015, at age 70, Ray Shepardson killed himself. The world was lucky enough to have someone like Ray Shepardson. Without Ray, I can say with absolute certainty that these theaters would have been destroyed. He took places in disarray and breathed life into them once more. He led 40 restoration projects and Cleveland was fortunate enough to be a part of it. When Ray passed, many were shocked and saddened, mourning the loss of a man who was called a dynamo, a dreamer, a visionary with a purpose, and an irrepressible force of nature. Playoff Square held a memorial for Ray on June 24, 2014 in the lobby of the State Theater where only 43 years before, Ray had stood on a stage in that very lobby, surrounded by people at the opening of Jock Brell and the beginning of the theater's new life. A year before his death, Ray accepted the Ohio Governor's Award for the Arts. It was the city and the state's way of finally giving Ray the biggest thank you they could for all that he did. Here's the last part of Ray's speech. In the old days, when Cleveland was the mistake on the lake, My favorite Cleveland joke was, what was the difference between Cleveland and the Titanic? Cleveland had a better orchestra. Still does. But now Cleveland has Playhouse Square. And she's no longer the mistake on the lake. Yes, Virginia, the arts can make a huge difference. And Ray Shepardson made a huge difference as well, which, if you think about it, not bad for a farm kid from Seattle. A couple years before Ray came to Cleveland, a young chum Einhouse came to the Ohio Theater to see a production of Mary Poppins. If you remember from our first episode, that wasn't really a pleasant experience, where Tom mainly found the hastily fixed up and still somewhat singed Ohio Theater to be scary and quite smelly. Well, 52 years later, Tom, now working for Playoff Square as their vice president of facilities and capital, got the opportunity of a lifetime. We were given the opportunity to do this through our um, capital campaign, advancing the legacy capital campaign, and a large gift from the Gunn Foundation. And we were able to totally restore that lobby back to what it was in 1921. The process of creating a lobby virtually identical to the one from nearly 100 years ago required using Thomas Lamb's original drawings, photographs from theater historical societies, and receiving help from many skilled architects and workers. So what it was like for me, it was um, it was magic. For all of us, it was just extraordinarily special. And to this day, every time I walk in that room, I look around and I'm just like, Wow. Just wow. It's, it's spectacular. The Ohio Theater's lobby restoration was a major achievement in a time where Playa Square was doing better than ever. 
The Broadway series was doing fantastic as a new rebooted production of Jesus Christ Superstar featuring 22 local musicians was about to open in the palace. There were hundreds of different shows going on across the nine performance spaces. And what was even better, in January of 2020, the Cleveland International Film Festival announced that it would be making Playoff Square its new home for the 2021 festival. Playoff Square was on top of the world but the world had other plans. Now to growing concerns about the deadly coronavirus officially hitting the U.S. Here's what we know. A Washington and State we all know what happened from there. COVID-19 spread across the U.S. and the world. People were confined to their homes. I, like many other kids, found a classroom replaced with a computer screen while stores, offices, and restaurants were closed. And Playhouse Square was no different. So how do you survive when the work that you do seems impossible? How can you do theater when there quite literally is no theater? Playo Square was about to find out whether they liked it or not. This episode was hosted and written by me, Sophia Kesa. The interviews you heard were with John Vacha, Penny Zalatel, Tom Einhaus, and Treva Offutt, as well as additional material featuring Ray Shepardson. Music was by Kate Porter. Special thanks to Justin Glanville, Anne Sindelar, Ruth Flannery, Frank Dutton, Kirsten Rose Brock Hayes, Nora Katiar, and Indira Katiar. And thank you for listening.